All right, so this is Kabbalah and Coffee. This is January 24th, 2021. We are studying. The book that we're studying is called Overcoming Folly. And by the way, um, by the way, I should mention that, hold on, let me mute everybody, just have a clean background. Um, I should mention that I reached out to Kahat, the, the publisher of the book, to see if they might reprint it because it's out of print right now, as some of you who've tried to get a hold of the book can attest to. Um, so they said that the hope is to get it back in print soon, but no promises to when that's going to happen. So stay tuned for that. All right, today is a very special day. Today is the 11th day of the month of Shvat. Now, why is this day special? Not only, not only because we are 12 days away from my birthday, also because today is... Hey, Ali Solish. Today is the day after the 10th of Shvat. So today is the 11th day of Shvat. Yesterday was the 10th day of Shvat. And the reason why that's significant is because exactly 70 years ago yesterday is the anniversary of when the Rebbe accepted the form, became the, the leader of the Chabad Lubavitch movement. And that, of course, is a very significant day on the Chabad calendar. And for all of us, because, I mean, frankly, I'm here and we're doing this with the inspiration of the Rebbe. So we certainly have a lot of gratitude and a lot of, um, it's certainly a very significant day. So what better way to start this week, you know, 70 years in, what better way to start the week than studying Kabbalah? What I want to do at the beginning is talk a little bit about... Let me tell you the objectives, and then I'll tell you how we're going to get there. The objectives are to explore the benefits of studying Kabbalah. So it's a bit of a meta look, you know, like kind of examining the self. So it's a bit of a meta look at Kabbalah as we're studying Kabbalah. So we're studying Kabbalah about Kabbalah. Does that make sense? Yes? Three benefits about Kabbalah. Um, So... Steve, is that, is that your dad? Hi, Rabbi. Hey, it's good to see you. It's been a few years. <laughs> well, I hear so much about you. Uh, Steve wanted me to see your program today, and here I am. Amazing, amazing. To only good health, to only good health. It's great to see you and study together. All right. So, Amen. So we're going to learn about Kabbalah and learn about the benefits of Kabbalah. But I first want to explore what is the source of Kabbalah? Where does Kabbalah come from? What is Kabbalah? Let's get a little bit into the background and then we'll talk about the benefits of studying Kabbalah. Okay, so Kabbalah, you know, so what is, first of all, what does Kabbalah mean? Kabbalah, what does it mean? So Kabbalah means to receive. Well, the word lekabel would mean to receive. Kabbalah means that which is received. Which off the bat tells us, like immediately tells us that this is not, um, that, that this is wisdom. Let's say, forget what it's not. This is wisdom that is received from, from a higher place, right? This is received wisdom. This is... We don't talk about the fact that it's generator wisdom, rather received wisdom. And frankly, the the rationale behind that is because, 
this is wisdom that's too profound to be generated, rather must be received from a higher source. So that's the first implication of the name Kabbalah, which means received, received wisdom. Now what's the original, what, what, what are some original works of Kabbalah? So the first known published work of Kabbalah is called Sefer Yetzirah, which means literally the book of formation. And there are different uh, opinions as to, the, as to the author of the work. Some say that it's authored by Abraham, right? Abraham as in, you know, Abraham, Abraham, right? Remember Abraham and Sarah, patriarch, matriarch, the first, first Jewish couple? So Abraham, um, some say that it's Abraham that authored Sefer Yitzhira. Some say that it's authored by none other than Adam himself, Adam from Adam and Eve fame. Um, so, so clearly Kabbalah goes back to the, pretty much the beginning, either to the beginning of, of humankind or the beginning of the Jewish story. Either way, Kabbalah dates back very, very far, right? But we know that throughout history, Kabbalah wasn't necessarily something that everybody studied. So the question is why? And so here's the simple answer. Kabbalah speaks about a lot of mysteries of the universe, and it speaks about God in a very, um, very cryptic way. It explores things, it explores reality, spiritual dimensions that could otherwise be complicating and confusing for the student. And so therefore, there was an understanding from the beginning that Kabbalah should only be taught to those students and individuals who are ready to receive this received wisdom. In other words, somebody who's proficient already in the entirety of Torah, someone who is not only a scholar intellectually, but also pious in character, somebody who is um, uh, filled with good deeds and sincerity and God-fearing, that's somebody who could be brought into the inner circle of the Mukubalim, the Kabbalists. Not capitalists, but the Kabbalists, right? So that person could be brought into this, uh, this inner, inner group. And it was typically taught from teacher, master to student, master to disciple, in a way that was a bit incognito, a bit secretive. In a, kind of like... Meet me by the third tree in the forest, and we'll study a little Kabbalah. It wasn't something that was done in a public forum, in a public setting, in a public lecture hall. It was done pretty much on the down low, teacher to student, quietly kept you know, under, under the radar. Not because the ideas aren't profound, not because the ideas aren't mainstream, but simply because the ideas given their mind-blowingness, right? I've now made that an adjective, right? Giving the mind-blowing nature of these ideas, the thought was, the concern was, that maybe not everybody is ready for it. In fact, the Talmud says, none other, uh, none other an authority than the Talmud says that, we, that, the, that people should not study the story of the Merkava, the story of the chariot in the book of Ezekiel, 
Right? The book of Ezekiel begins with the story of the divine chariot, his vision of, of God on a chariot, etc. The Talmud says, don't study it. It's, it's in scripture. Don't study it. Why? Because it could lead a person to heretical thoughts. It could lead a person to heresy. Why? Because if you look at it, right, um, it talks about God. It talks about a chariot. It talks about God riding on a chariot. And so what kind of God are you going to picture in your mind? You're going to picture, you and I will picture some sort of human form riding on a chariot. And we know that, that, that God does not assume a human form. Now, why does Ezekiel speak of God in that fashion? Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. To understand that, you need to be well-versed in Torah and mysticism to appreciate why the prophet would use such language to describe God. And that's exactly what the Talmud is saying. Only someone who's ready to explore it should explore it. Otherwise, it's going to raise more questions than answers. Are you with me so far? Yes? Does it make sense? Okay. And yet, today Kabbalah is studied everywhere. Right? Kabbalah is studied um, in, in public settings. We're studying Kabbalah every Sunday morning. Kabbalah and coffee. Right? We've even combined Kabbalah with coffee. Right? <laughs> How 21st century is that? It's fantastic. So, what's, so what changed and what's going on? Are we somehow doing something taboo? Are we doing something, you know, edgy? If Maybe. But I'll tell you the truth. The truth is that in the last several centuries, the great Kabbalists have said that it's time to reveal this wisdom to the masses. It's time to bring it out from under you know, from kind of, you know, under the surface to above the surface. There are multiple reasons why. Um, I'll give you two primary rationales, and then we're going to jump into the benefits of studying Kabbalah, which will tie into this discussion. So one rationale was actually given by the Alta Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, the first of the Chabad Rebbe's. He was born in 1745, and he passed away in 1812. So this is what the first of the Chabad Rebbe's, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, the Alta Rebbe, said about Kabbalah. He gave an example. He said there was once, this is um, a fictional story that's used as a parable for the opening up of uh, the teachings of Kabbalah to the masses. So there was once a king. And you may have heard me tell, tell this before, but nonetheless, it's always good to be reminded as to why we're studying and the power of Kabbalah study. So he said there was once a king that had an only son, who was the prince. And the prince became, fell very ill. He was so ill, he got sicker and sicker, and it was to the point that he was gravely ill on his deathbed. And there was nothing that any of the physicians could do to help this young boy. They tried everything, every remedy, every, every medication, every formula, every herbal concoction, nothing worked. They tried. Trust me, the king pulled all of the physicians, all, anyone that had any sort of insight, but nothing helped. So, the king at that point was despondent until there was one man, one physician who came to the king and said, I have a thought, but I'm hesitant to share it with you. The king said, don't hold back, share it with me. The fellow said, this physician said, that there is one stone that 
has the prop that that possesses the properties that could possibly heal the prince. He said, but it's a very rare stone. And the only way that this stone could heal the prince is if you take the stone, grind it up into a powder, mix it with certain liquids, potions, whatever, make a formula, make a suspension, a liquid out of it, out of the powder of the stone, and then feed it into the mouth of the prince. The king said, why are you hesitant to tell me this? Let's go ahead with it. Get the stone and go ahead with it. The fellow said, it's such a, the physician said, it's such a rare stone. There's only one known stone. And it's the, it's the crown jewel of your, it's the jewel, the crown jewel of your own crown. So what do you want to do? The king, with zero hesitation, said, take my crown, take the stone, crush it, grind it, prepare it. The physician said, but you realize that it may not work. Doesn't matter. But you realize that most of the, at this point, the child can't even swallow. So we're going to try to pour it into his mouth that maybe a drop goes in, but, per, but most of it is probably not going to go in and it's not going to heal the prince. The king said, it doesn't matter. Take it, crush it, do whatever you can to spare the life, to possibly save the life of my child. The Alter Rebbe said that so it is with Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy that there was a time when we, humanity, perhaps we as a people, were spiritually strong. There was a time when we had a holy temple, a time when we had prophets, a time that we had uh, miracles and, 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 and clarity. But then, as the years and as the, ex as the years passed and as the exile, our exile has uh, become more difficult, it's become more difficult for the average person to remain excited and connected and, and plugged in spiritually. And so... What happens in essence, you know, using the parallel, is that God takes his crown jewel and says, crush it up, <laughs> grind it to a powder, mix it with water, create a formula, whatever it takes to uplift the spirits of, of humankind, to uplift the spirits of people, of, uh, of my people, etc., and, and, and bring life and vitality into the world. This is how the Alter Rebbe explained the rationale behind opening up Kabbalah. Essentially, there's a need now more than ever for meaning and insight and direction, and this is what Kabbalah helps, what Kabbalah helps serve. That's one rationale. A second rationale for the, um, for the um, uh, publicizing of Kabbalah is the idea that at the closer we get to the times of Mashiach, the closer we get to the Messianic era, the more we taste of the wisdom of that time. And when Mashiach comes, godliness will be revealed, as the prophet says, it says that all flesh will see that the mouth of God is speaking. It doesn't say that all people will see or that all eyes will see, but it says that the flesh itself will see. The physical matter itself will see God. 
certainly human beings and, 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 and minds will see, will, will have a perception of God. And so as a taste of Mashiach, we have this, uh, this wisdom of Kabbalah that allows us to, to see God and to sense God and to appreciate God. So that's a little bit of an insight into why, although in previous generations, you know, for centuries, Kabbalah and millennia really, Kabbalah was always taught quietly, whereas today it's taught in a, uh, in a public fashion, more public fashion, and it's opened up, the wisdom is opened up for all. By the way, I should mention that the Kabbalah that's taught today is taught in a different way than Kabbalah was taught back in the day. Back in the day, it was taught much more in an in, in encrypted format. It was taught intentionally to be very cryptic and very esoteric. Today, it's taught in a much more accessible way, again, with this in mind, that it's about, a big piece of it is about utility, that to inspire people and to, to, um, for, yeah, to inspire people, that's why it has to be taught in a way that is, that is more open and a way that's more understandable. This is really the role, one of the roles and, and functions of, of Chabad philosophy, which is to take Kabbalah and make it understandable. Chachma, Bina, and Das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, is about taking esoteric wisdom, wisdom and making it understandable and digestible for the human mind. So this is a little bit about Kabbalah, the history of Kabbalah, and also where we stand today. Um, I think it's also, it's also um, important to note that Kabbalah primarily speaks about two realities, the macro and the micro, the macrocosm and the microcosm. Kabbalah speaks about God and spiritual worlds and realms and divine dimensions, like lofty realities, but it also speaks about the core of who we are inside, right? So it speaks about the large, what's out there, so to speak, but it also speaks about what's inside, what's inside of us. And at the very same time, it also speaks about what's inside Torah, what's inside a mitzvah. In other words, the spiritual soul that drives a mitzvah which also, frankly, makes it much more access accessible for the modern mind. Let me explain what I just said. You know, maybe a few hundred years ago, you could tell somebody, this is a mitzvah, do it because you need to do it. Why? Because you have to. Maybe not even a few hundred years ago. Maybe you experienced this in Hebrew school. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, not, not that long ago. Do it because you have to. And if you have any questions, you can't ask any questions. Do it, no questions asked. Yeah, can anybody relate to that? I think, I think that was, uh, that was it's a bit of an old school approach. It doesn't work today. Why doesn't it work today? Who knows? It doesn't work today. Today, people want to do something because it resonates, because it's meaningful, because they get it, because it, because it, it, right? Can you relate to that? Right? We want to do something because it, it, it feels, because you feel it. I'm not judging better or worse. It's just, it's just the reality of, of, of more modern times. And by the way, it's not only the last few decades. It's been a trend over the last few centuries. And so the Kabbalists realized this. And the Kabbalists said that no longer, or it's not enough to tell people, this is Torah, these are the mitzvot, and that's it. You've got to do it. You've got to give people the spiritual dimension behind it. Why? What's the meaning of it? What's the spirituality behind it? So whether it's a mitzvah, whether it's a holiday, right? Rosh Hashanah, what's the soul of Rosh Hashanah? What's the soul and the spirit, spirit of Yom Kippur? What's the soul of 
Sukkot? What's the soul of Hanukkah? What's the soul of the upcoming holiday of Purim and Pesach, Passover, and Shavuot? And, uh, oh, I missed the counting of the Omer, right? What's the soul of counting the Omer? That's, that's what resonates for us today. You tell someone, oh, you've got to observe, observe this holiday. Yeah, this is what we do. We, we, want, we seek meaning. Human beings are meaning seekers. Especially today, we seek meaning. And this is another benefit, another element of what Kabbalah provides. All right, today, we're going to get into three additional benefits of Kabbalah as described in this text. Um, I, I feel like, it, since it's been a few weeks, I feel like I should probably reset a little bit of the conversation in this discourse so that we can understand why it is that we're talking about the benefits of Kabbalah. The truth is, we could do this as a freestanding session, right? What are the benefits of Kabbalah? Three benefits. And that would be valuable unto itself. But it is coming in a context, and I think it's important to understand how this fits into the context of our discourse. Our discourse is called Overcoming Folly. And the premise is so simple. It's so piercingly simple. The premise is that human beings do lots of foolish things, right? That you and I do, do so many things that we end up regretting. We end up facepalming later. What was I thinking? And the answer is, what were you thinking? What was I thinking? The answer is, I was thinking all sorts of Narishkaiten. I was thinking all sorts of Mishagasin. I'm using Yiddish terms here, right? I was thinking all sorts of rationalizations and justifications, right? That's what I, what was I thinking? What do you mean, what was I thinking? I had a very good script in my head as to why I was able to get myself to do that thing that I'm now saying, what, what did I do? Why did I do this? I had a good justification. So the simple premise of this series, of this di series of discourses, in this book, Overcoming Folly, is understanding what are the shtuyot, what are the foolish things, that, stories that we tell ourselves to get us into negative behavior. How can we recognize them? And how can we effectively, effectively catch ourselves in those moments? Wait a second, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing that wheel spinning rationalization let me stop and replace it with a healthy, accurate, straightforward thought pattern. That's the goal. The goal is to replace the foolish thought with the healthy thought. So it requires, re number one, recognizing the wheel spinning justification. It requires right, recognizing that and being able to pause but also being able to counteract that because it is, it's, it's very powerful in the moment, counteract that with another thought pattern that can get us to push that away. So the first foolish thought that we're exploring is the idea. So we, the first shtus, uh, uh, the first folly that we're exploring is the one that happens with Adam and Eve. Right? What's the, the first mistake of human beings was eating from the forbidden fruit, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? And that tree, that fruit, 
was eaten, as the Torah says, for one simple reason. It says that Chava Eve saw that it was good to the eyes. It looked good and she wanted to eat it. And Adam saw that it looked good and he wanted to eat it. And what this tells us, straight off the bat, is that the first, the first uh, um, cause of, of, of making these mistakes, of falling into negative behavior, is the fact that we see something and it looks good. The fact that we see something and it looks attractive to the eyes. Oh, this looks good. This looks like it would be um, pleasurable. Let me do it. That, that thought process is one that gets us into trouble all the time. And so that's the first one that we're addressing in this book, Overcoming Folly. The first issue that we're addressing is how to deal with when something looks good and something looks appealing. And the way we counteract that what we're developing is that a person should, you and I should tell ourselves, wait a second, this looks good. Is this the true good that I should be pursuing actively? Is this the true good that I should be running after? Is a fruit, right? Should I be running after this fruit or should I be running after something a little bit more meaningful? And so we've explored various forms of pleasure. We're putting food and drink at the lowest form of pleasure on the totem pole, if you will, of pleasures. Above that, we discussed music, right? There's music, there's art, there's uh, um, doing something kind to someone else that gives us pleasure. There's philosophy and wisdom. It's another form of pleasure. All of these are higher forms of human pleasure that are much greater than the simple pleasure of eating. Now again, the purpose of this conversation is not simply to denigrate the experience of eating and drinking. That's not the intention. The intention is to give us mental, um, to give us a mental meditation to replace in our heads, to replace um, the thought process that gets us into trouble. So when we find ourselves running after something that looks good on the most basic level, one way to, to get us out of that kind of fierce pursuit is to say, one second, there are so many greater things that I could be doing with my time now, pursuing. There are so many greater pleasures. You know, even, if I'm, even, if I'm, uh, uh, even if I am... Um, wanting pleasure, there's a greater form of pleasure. Why would I settle for this pleasure if I could go for something greater? Again, this is a tool to get us out of that kind of that frenetic place of I have to have it. It looks good. I must have it. So it's about pausing, taking account of what am I thinking about and replacing it with another thought. This is not the pleasure, the be-all and end-all. This is the lowest form of pleasure. There's so many greater things that I could be doing that are healthier. Let me focus on something else and let me stay away from this. Now, the context is forbidden fruit. The context is Adam and Eve being told not to eat from this tree. And the tree looks good. The fruit looks good. And they want to they go for it. So the message, if we were able to intervene, if, we were, if, we, if you and I were able to pause the story and have a conversation with Adam and Eve, what would we tell them? Based on our discourse, we would tell them the following. Adam, 
Eve, how you doing? They were probably very um, concerned as to why there are other people there and why we're intervening. But again, work with me in this story, right? So we would tell them, Adam, Eve, come, let's have a fabrengen. Yeah, I see that you're really excited about this fruit suddenly. Okay, so you could chastise them, by the way, and say, God said, no, how could you? That's, that's fire and brimstone. Who wants that approach? This approach is much different. It's much more gentle, and it works better for the moment. It says, it looks good. It looks tasty. It looks exciting. There's, so, there's, a not, there's something more exciting that you can do right now. You want excitement? Oh, boy, I got excitement for you. And channel the, the, channel the passion, channel the pleasure in a higher, healthier way. Are you with me on this? It's, yes? I got to have at least one nod. All right, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Max. Right? So it's about channeling. Thank you. So it, it, it's, it's not about saying, oh, how dare I, in my mind, how dare I pursue something that feels good. No, it's, it's if you're looking for something that's good, this is not the be-all and end-all of good. This is the lowest, right? Well, it's the forbidden fruit in the context of Adam and Eve, but this is the lowest. There's so many greater things that I could be doing instead of wasting my time running after this that's, you know, gone in a moment. It's such a momentary, fleeting, lower experience. So, in this context, in tracing other forms of pleasure that are higher and more meaningful and more significant, we end up at the top of the totem pole, probably not surprisingly in a text of Kabbalah, we end up talking about Kabbalah as a replacement pleasure for eating. Now, you still have to eat, by the way. This is not saying totally, you know, replace your diet with Kabbalah. Although, whatever, but you still have to eat. But the point is that what is the greatest form of pleasure? It's wisdom. And the greatest spiritual form of, of wisdom is studying Torah. And the greatest, most spiritual form of studying Torah is studying Kabbalah. This is why we're talking about the benefits of studying Kabbalah. So I'm going to share my screen with you. And we're going to go through um, the text. I'm actually, we're actually going to back up a little bit. We already did this first paragraph that we're going to start with, we already did a few weeks ago. We're going to pick it up from there and then get into new territory as well, just because I want to be able to clearly show the three benefits that are discussed in this discourse. One, two, three. I want to go through them inside the text. All right. Let me pause, take a breath, and check in. Questions, comments, does this make sense? Please jump in. Donna. So the way you just described it, wisdom and study, so in a sense, the greatest pleasure is very internal then, right? Yeah, yeah. The highest pleasure, the highest pleasure is, he's saying, the pleasure of, 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 intellectual, of something intellectual. If you think about the hierarchy of the human being, right, you think about the, the ten sefirot, the ten, or kochot hanefesh, the ten powers of the soul, the highest is chachma, the highest is intellect. So he's saying the, 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 the simple experience of eating a fruit from a tree, it's not a human, it's not exclusively human. An animal also enjoys it. That doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it not something to run after to our own detriment. That's the important piece of it. No one is saying that the next time you want to eat, don't eat. 
That's not the point of this discourse. The point is, if eating is getting us into trouble, like Adam and Eve's eating, right? If eating is to our detriment, here's a replacement thought. Now, is that for sure going to work? Nothing's guaranteed and nothing, you know, and we're still human. But this is a thought process that you and I can leverage to get us out of unbecoming behavior. When we find ourselves in a state of obsession with something. And by the way, it doesn't have to be eating or drinking. It could be anything that would be contained in that lower category. Remember, a few weeks, several weeks ago, I pointed out that what defines lower or higher pleasures, it's what, it's, it's the simple question. Does that pleasure exist exclusively with human beings or is it shared by other forms of life? Now, the ones that are shared by other forms of life, that defines them in Kabbalah as lower. So really anything that would be shared by nature, by animals, would be considered part of that lower thing. doesn't make it wrong, but it just, it just puts, it just contextualizes it. So if it's a pursuit that's leading us, and we know this, right? We know this in hindsight 2020, what was I doing? The question is in the moment, how do we get ourselves out of that? When we find ourselves down that road that we know ends up with us, Gavald, what did I do? But we're in that moment and we're, we feel stuck because I see it, I want it, I need it. Like Adam and Eve. This is a meditation that if we study it enough, hopefully we have it in our mental toolbox to pull out and say, I want it, I feel like I need it. There's a higher form of pleasure that I could pursue right now. Even if I want pleasure, there's something greater and more befitting to, to who I am as a human being. There's something more dignified, something more true to self, right? I can channel my passions. I can channel my pleasure in a healthier and higher way. Now, is that always going to work? If we were angels... But we're not. We're human beings, so it's not always going to work. But to then say, well, then I'm not even going to try, that, that's, that's also not okay. Right? So we have to know, we have to know what drives negative behavior. And we also have to give ourselves the best shot in kind of avoiding that. So really, if you wanted to know what is this discourse about, it's trying to avoid bad choices. That's what it is, based on Kabbalah. I mean, that's a great premise, right? That's why we're studying it, right? It's a great premise. But yeah, um, I, think, I hope that addresses your question. All right, any other questions or comments before we jump in? Okay, without further ado, let us jump in. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let me find the right screen to share. Uno momento. Here we go. All right, I'm going to start from, I, I, I'm not going to start inside here. I'm just going to reference it. Let me make this a little bit bigger so everyone can see.
Okay, so the premise is that a thing is fulfilled when it ascends, when it transcends self. Every creature, when it, ascend, when it transcends self, that, that, that constitutes its fulfillment. So for a human being, what that means is that when we connect with something greater, when we connect with something more spiritual, when we connect with God, that is the fulfillment of self. The fulfillment of self is self-transcendence. So for human beings, it means to touch the divine. How do we touch the divine? He focuses on one way, which is through Torah study. So he talks here, uh, um, this is page 36 in the book, he talks here about studying the revealed parts of Torah. If you notice, he refers to reveal Torah. Reveal Torah. What is reveal Torah? So reveal Torah would mean uh, Jewish law. Studying Jewish law, studying the Talmud. Um, you know, what happens if uh, two people come into court and each one is holding the same garment and each one claims that they founded, uh, you know, abandoned property and each one claims to have found it. So you have Reuven and Shimon, and they come in, and they both, let me stop sharing so I can see you, because we're not doing an intent anyway for the moment. So each one claims, Reuven says, I found it first, and Shimon says, I found it first, and they're both holding onto the same garment in the Jewish court, in the Betin. What do you do? Who do you give it to? So the Talmud goes through it, based on Torah, based on Scripture, and it goes through the case, and it gives you, it gives you a practical law, uh, how to proceed in a case of, of this type of conflict. Or what happens if one person's ox gores another person's ox? I know you and I don't usually have oxen, but, you know, it would be similar to, you know, my car or whatever. Somebody's car crashed into another car. This is called the reveal parts of Torah. Why is it revealed? Because it's, it's legal. It's surface. It's not Kabbalah. It's not mystical. It's, it's, it's legalistic. It's, it's the laws of Torah. It doesn't have to be torn in damages, by the way. It doesn't have to be, um, could be the laws of a holiday, the laws of Shabbat, right? How to keep Shabbat, how to keep uh, Passover, how to bake matzah in a kosher fashion. Any of the laws of Judaism would be part of the revealed part of Torah, the body of Torah. When we study that, we become connected. Let me jump back into the text. He says we become connected with the author of Torah, with God. Right? So he says the revealed Torah is actually God's will and, will and intellect because it is the divine wisdom that decrees that one thing, that this is kosher, this thing is not kosher, etc. So when we study it, we're connecting with the divine mind behind it, God, and with the divine will behind it. God wants us to do this. God wants us to not do this. When we study it, we're connecting with God's will and wisdom. That's what he says. Right? Therefore, let me just conclude this paragraph that I'm paraphrasing. When a person studies them, the laws of Torah, right, the body of Torah, the revealed Torah, the person becomes united and merged with this divine wisdom. You become one with God's wisdom of what we should do, what we shouldn't do. It's not only God's wisdom, it's also God's will, what God wants us to do and not to do. Let's talk about Kabbalah now. All of that is the revealed parts of Torah. Take a look. Take a look. We're going to start inside right here. The inner aspect of Torah, by contrast, that was all the body of Torah. Now let's talk about the soul of Torah. The inner part, Pnimiot Torah, the, 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 the secrets of Torah. 
the inner aspect of Torah is the knowledge and comprehension of God. It's not studying about oxen. It's not studying about um, uh, two people holding a garment. It's not studying about a holiday. It's not, you're studying about God himself. You with me in the difference? You're not studying about God's will, about how to navigate the world. You're studying about spirituality itself, godliness itself. Our teachers, let's continue, the Rebbes of earlier generations reveal to us that this is the inner or inward aspect of the divine wisdom. So divine wisdom has two dimensions. There's the inner aspect and the outer aspect. The outer aspect of divine wisdom are the laws, rules, and regs. You study that in the Talmud. You study that in, in, in the laws of Torah. What's the inner aspect of divine wisdom? That's Kabbalah. Make sense what I'm saying? Yes? The inner aspect of God's wisdom is studying about God. When studying it, one binds himself with the inwardness of his wisdom. Again, when you study Kabbalah, listen, we're studying Kabbalah right now. So when you study Kabbalah, one binds him or herself with the inwardness of his wisdom, which far transcends the external. So you're not, you study any part of Torah, you're studying divine wisdom. But the body of Torah is the external part. Um, give you an example. Let me give you, an, let, me, let me come up with an example right now. You know, a person tells you something. There's two aspects of what they tell you. There's what they told you. And then there's the motivation behind what, why what they, behind what they told you, right? So there's, they told you, um, can you please go to the store and get uh, this, that, or the other? So that's the body. The soul would be the motivation behind it. Why? So the body of Torah is the what? The soul of Torah is the why, and the why speaks to God. God and God's motivation and why, and, and it's just exploring deeper dimensions about God and about what God wants and why. That's the external part of divine wisdom, not, sorry, that's the internal, the inward part of divine wisdom as opposed to its external component. Give you an example that I've used many, many times. Somebody walks into the kitchen. Yeah, vitamin T essence of power, yeah. So uh, somebody walks into the kitchen. And they see a kettle on the stove. And the kettle is whistling. Right? It's boiling. The kettle is boiling on the stovetop. And a person says, and there's a person in the kitchen next to the stovetop. Next to the stove. And, the, and you walk in. All right, I, think, I feel like I'm mixing characters. Okay, you and someone else. Right? Someone else is in the kitchen. You're walking into the kitchen. And you see the kettle whistling, and you ask the person in the kitchen, why is, why is the water boiling? And they answer, because I heated the water to 212 degrees. That's why the water is boiling. A chacham. Chacham, right? Yeah, a wise guy. 
a wise guy. Why is the water boiling? Because I've heated it to 212 degrees. Thank you very much. I didn't ask for the mechanics, for the, I didn't ask for the chemistry behind it, the science behind it. I want to know why you're boiling water. Are you making coffee? Are you making tea? Are you making something else? What are, you, what are you doing with the water? So there's the external and the inward, the internal. There's the body, there's the soul. There's the surface, there's the deeper dimension. So the surface of God's wisdom is the rules and regulations. The deeper dimension is what God, why God wants us to do what, we, what, what, what we're doing, right? It's understanding God, understanding what God wants from us, understanding about God. That's a different, that's a different type of connection with divine wisdom, and that's what, hap- that's what we accomplish, or that's what we achieve when we study Kabbalah, back inside. Back inside. Um, so that's one advantage. Oh, we're counting three advantages. Count with me. That was one. One advantage of Kabbalah over other studies of Torah. By the way, this is not in any way knocking, denigrating, minim- uh, minimizing the study of the body of Torah. We have to study the Torah, study Talmud, study the law, Torah law, etc. 100%. This is not in any way you know, denigrating that. But it's talking about an advantage of Kabbalah. So again, advantage number one is, as opposed to studying the external dimension of God's wisdom, we're connect, or sorry, connecting with the external dimension of God's wisdom, we're connecting with the inward part of divine wisdom. Next, number two. There's another advantage in this knowledge of the inner Torah, and that is its effect on the person. So, number one is what you're connecting with. You're connecting with the surface or with the essence. Okay, that Kabbalah connects you with the essence of God's wisdom. Advantage number two is the effect that it has, the, 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 the effect that it has on the person. Now, now, look what he says here. Although this knowledge, the knowledge of Kabbalah, is limited to the knowledge of God's existence, nonetheless, his mind does conceive and attain knowledge of the existence of the spiritual. What he's trying to say here is that there's two, two types of knowing. Let me stop sharing for a moment because this is extremely important. And, and I, I did talk about this several weeks ago, a few weeks ago, but I need to mention it now and I'm going to give you a new analogy that I have learned firsthand over the last several weeks. Okay, you ready? Here we go. There's something called Hasagas Hamahus, and there's something called Yediyas Hamatsias. Hasagas Hamahus means when you know something from the inside out. You know it, you can experience it, you can taste it, it's real, it's tangible, you got it. Then there's, that's Hasagas Hamahus. Mahus is Mahu, what it is. You understand what it is, you grasp it. Then there's Yediyas Hamatsias, which means you know that it exists, but you don't necessarily have it captured. Okay, so what's the difference? Or what, what's an example of the difference? So, as some of you may know, I, um, a few weeks ago, I got uh, COVID. And as part of that, so I lost my taste and my smell. Now, what, are you familiar with that as being a symptom? Yes, you've heard that? Okay, taste and smell gone. So here's the thing, at least for me. 
When I lost my taste and smell, it's come back. Thank God. Not 100%, by the way, but that's for another time, another discussion. Um, losing taste and smell, for me, didn't mean that I couldn't smell or taste anything. So, for example, if something was spicy, I could taste that it was spicy without being able to identify the spice. Are you with me on that at all? You could taste that it's sweet, conversely, without being able to identify what's sweet. So I'm a fan of like fruity teas, whatever. You probably know that from, from the classes when they were in person. I like tea and I like, you know, I'm, whatever. So right now, I can smell it. Right now I can say, I have raspberry tea. Raspberry tea. So at the height of, of, this, of the, the, the lack of smell and taste, I could taste or sense that it had taste and smell, but I couldn't identify what it was. Are you with me? So it, it, but it wasn't like a total blank slate. It was, you could sense that there was something there. You could sense that it was sweet or that it was fruity, but you couldn't identify exactly what it was. So I thought to myself, if only to give me an analogy for the difference between Hasagas Hamahus and Yidis Hamatzias, this concept in Kabbalah, Dayenu. In other words, like, if only to give me an analogy, a parable, to, to, to explain and to understand for myself the difference between grasping something and knowing about something, Dayenu. What's the difference, right? So when you can taste it, and you can taste what you're tasting, and you know what you're tasting, and your taste buds wrap around what you're tasting. Ah! Oh. So, so that's, that's hasagas amahus. That's grasping what it is. And when you can't taste it, when you only know about the taste, you know that it has a taste. You can sense that it has a taste, but you can't actually taste it. Right? But you can sense enough that it has a taste. You can still sense that it has a taste even though you can't taste it. That is Yedisimitzias. That's like Yedisimitzias. That's like knowing that it is without knowing what it is. So when it comes to Torah study, there's two types of Torah study. There's study when you, where your, your mind is grasping what it is. And then there's study that you're not grasping it, but you know that it is. So when it comes to the body of Torah, when it comes to the to Jewish law, the external for, a part of divine wisdom, that you can wrap your head around, right? You know what a cow is. You know what another cow is. You know what a, a horn of a cow is. And you know what damage is and what injury is, right? You know what a garment is. You know what a person is. You know what another person is. You know what a fight is between two people over, over a property, right? You can, you can wrap your head around it. You know what matzah is. You know what an oven is, you know what flour is, you know what water is. There's, not, there's no mystery. Yeah, the laws of baking matzah. How do you bake matzah kosher for Passover? Only two ingredients, flour and water. They have to be mixed and baked flat without rising under 18 minutes. You can grasp that. I can grasp that. Our minds can grasp that because there's nothing outside of our realm of, of, of experience. So our minds completely grasp that law. There's nothing mysterious. There's nothing mystical about it at all. It's very much accessible. It's very much apprehendable. 
When it comes to God, when it comes to studying Kabbalah, yeah, we learn about Atzilut, the world of emanation. We learn about Ak, Adam Kanmon, Atik and Arich and, and, and Pritzimtzum and Postsimtzum. And we can give analogies from today to tomorrow, but do we really understand who God is and what God is? Like we understand what a cow, lahavdil, what a cow is? No. That's what we call Yediyas HaMetzias. We know about it, but we don't grasp it. So the advantage of studying the body of Torah is that you can actually grasp it. When it comes to Kabbalah, we know about it, but we can never wrap our heads around it to the same extent. Is what, does what, does, is what I'm saying making sense? Yes? Is, does my, do you understand why I gave the analogy about the taste and smell? Yeah, you can wrap your head around it or you know that it is. Okay, fine. So getting back inside, we're talking about, I'm going to share my screen in a moment. We're talking about the advantage of studying Kabbalah. So what he's saying, he's bavarining. I'm giving you a Yiddish word here. Important, important Yiddish word. Bavarin. Bavarining. I'm, I'm making it an ing. I'm making it a, a verb, a present happening verb. He's bavarining. A, a, a thing that you might think. Bavar means to forewarn or to preempt. He's preempting something. He's saying, even th he's even thoughing. Even though Kabbalah has a disadvantage that you're only knowing that God, right? Not that, as opposed to this. You're knowing about God. You're not grasping God. You're only knowing about the existence of God. Nonetheless, it has a greater impact on the human, on the human being, on the human character. All right, that's what he's saying over here. Let me share my screen, and hopefully that will be clear as we reiterate the second line. Although this knowledge of Kabbalah is limited to knowledge of his existence as opposed to the essence Right? When you study Jewish law, you know the essence. You can wrap your mind around the thing itself. Whereas when it comes to Kabbalah, you're, knowing, you're, you're learning about God, but you can't really wrap your head around God. So although that's a disadvantage, if you will, with Kabbalah study, nonetheless, his mind does conceive and, and attain knowledge of the existence of the spiritual. Right? You're not studying cows. You're studying spirituality. So although you're not wrapping your head around it, to the same extent, but what you're knowing or what you're understanding on whatever level is about God and spirituality. And what happens then is the spiritual becomes palpable, as it were, within his soul. It becomes, you start gaining a, a, a spiritual, spiritual recognition in your own soul. It becomes real. Spirituality becomes real within your being. The person becomes bound up with it, attached to it, and a result, and as a result, he transcends his own physical nature and attains a state of refinement and spirituality. In other words, when we study, when we study the laws of a cow goring another cow, it doesn't make us more, <laughs> a more sensitive person. It just makes us more aware of what to do in case that my cow gores your cow, I know what I'm on the hook for. That's all it does. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just, it's divine will that that's what the law should be. But it doesn't transform me as a human being into more edel, into more of a mensch. 
right? Yeah, if my cow gores your cow, when you're in Walmart, maybe I'll put a note on your cow saying, whoops, my cow bumped your cow under the, the cow windshield, right? Um, but you have to recognize, I know it's Zoom, but you got to recognize when it's tongue-in-cheek, etc. all right? But, 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 it, so on one hand, it makes us more of a, leg, uh, more of a legally-minded mensch, but as far as the spiritual sensitivity, right? Spiritual sensitivity happens when we study Kabbalah. This attainment is inward and personal. Look at that. When we study Kabbalah, this, the refinement that is born of that study of Kabbalah, when we're thinking about God and spirituality, that refines us as a human being, that becomes an inward and personal experience, both within his own self and also externally, in reference to all his interests and activities. In other words, it transforms us inside, so that we are more refined and that our act actions in the world are more refined. They all become more refined and spiritual. They are not bound up with the physical at all and they rise above awareness of self. And that means it, it, they rise above ego. When we do something, it becomes more about the cause that we're doing it for and less about self. This is in Yiddish in the original. So in general, just, uh, just a note on, on, on construct, on language. So this discourse is written in Hebrew, published in Hebrew, but there are certain elements that are written in Yiddish kind of to evoke the idea that it's more personal or it's more, it's more, everyone spoke Yiddish then. So it's more uh, heartsick, it's more heartfelt. So this is what he writes in the parentheses here. Whatever, this is in the originals in Yiddish. Whatever he does, whether studying Torah or performing mitzvot, is done in a refined way, without grossness. Grossness means without it being um, like a, a coarse experience, without self-consciousness. That means without, that means without, um, self-conscious doesn't mean that you're not aware of what you're doing. It means that you're not, um, It's not about ego. It's, you're not doing it, you know, because you're aware that other people are looking at you. Without being blatant. You're not doing it uh, to make a point or to, to get fame. And without complacency. It goes without saying that his piety is not evident to another. In other words, the goal is not that everybody should know how pious I am. Right? And by no means would he consider doing something to impress anyone. I'm not, I'm not doing it just so that you know you know, how impressive I am. Somebody who studies Kabbalah, so he's saying the effect of Kabbalah is that you're, th you're thinking about God, even if you can't wrap your head fully around God in totality. But what you are doing is you're thinking about God, you're thinking about spirituality, you're thinking about things that are higher. And what that does is it inevitably, this is his point, it inevitably then has an effect inside the person to make them more edel to make them more refined, more refined from the inside. It's not, there's no test that you can take, you know, to show this or whatever. It's just, it's just about a, um, a state of being. It's about, it, it, and everyone knows it for themselves. It's, am I sincere? Am I, am I doing it for the right reason? Am I looking for attention? Am I just doing it because it's the right thing? 
And then furthermore, another, another form of this benefit, this is all part of uh, benefit number two, is his material affairs. In other words, the, not only when you do a mitzvah, but when whatever you're doing, eating, drinking, working, you know, uh, carpool, will of course be divested of their materialistic emphasis for he will rid himself of any desire for them, his only desire being for godliness. Which means that the person becomes refined and therefore is, not, is always looking for a bit of a higher experience in whatever experience they are. So what, even if it's a physical thing that they're, that they're doing, there's a higher intention and a deeper intention and really a sensitivity in that experience. It's the difference between coarseness and sensitivity on a spiritual level, right? Spiritual coarseness versus spiritual sensitivity. And he's saying this is benefit number two of studying Kabbalah. So in short, in summation, I'm not going to read this summary. I'm going to give you my own summary. So in summation, we've discussed, we've explored two benefits of studying Kabbalah. Number one, that a person becomes bound and connected with God's deepest wisdom. And number two, it transforms the person from within to be more of a mensch, more of a, of a refined person, more of an edel person, more sensitive, less ego-driven, more sincere, more true, more, more of a mensch. That's benefit number two. Let's move on quickly to, or not quickly, but let's move straight to chapter four. This is going to be number three, third benefit. Another advantage accruing, I love that word, another advantage accruing from study of the inner Torah, Kabbalah, is that it leads to love and fear of God. Love and fear of God. In accordance with the verse that says, know this day and take unto your heart that the Lord is God. So the verse from Deuteronomy says, know this day, which means you're not knowing the day. It's, it's, it's know about God today. This, on this day, you should know and then take unto your heart. And what should you know and take unto your heart? That the Lord is God. Hashem hu Elohim. That God, that, that Hashem is Elohim. Without getting into the, that, that also has a Kabbalistic explanation, but without getting into the details, the point that he's trying to bring out is that knowing leads to feeling. It says know and then take unto your heart. And the point is that what we know in our heads has an impact on how we feel in our hearts. So that's what he says. The advantage, again, going back to the beginning of this paragraph, another advantage that's from the study of inner Torah is that it leads to love and fear of God. When you study the inner Torah in your head, when you know Kabbalah, when you know about God, that leads to your heart. That leads to love and fear of God. Does that make sense? Right? The Kabbalah study leads to a love and fear of God. I want to I elaborate on that in a moment, but first let me define the terms love and fear of God. Well, loving God, I think, is a little bit easier to understand. Loving God means that you love God. Love God means that you're, you appreciate God and you want to get closer. Love is a feeling of closeness and a desire to get closer. So loving God means that you feel a closeness to God and you want to get closer. But what is fear of God? This, is, this could be a very um, mistaken 
People could, mis- could, could be very mistaken in, in, in understanding what this means. What does it mean to fear God? Let me stop sharing for a moment and, and, and let me, so that I could see all of you uh, more clearly. What does it mean to fear God? You talk about a person who's God-fearing, what they're afraid of God? The problem is that we're dealing with English. And in English, all bets are off. So from an English vocabulary perspective, fearing God would seem to mean that you're afraid of God, right? You should love God. I love God. And at the same time, be afraid that at any moment, God's going to zap you. Healthy? That's not healthy, right? So what does Kabbalah lead? Kabbalah leads me to be afraid of God. So why am I studying Kabbalah? (laughs) I want to be afraid of God. That's not what fear of God means. Give you an example. A person is on a business trip. And they're with, they're traveling with a person who is in their business who is not their spouse. And they're staying at a hotel. They're sharing a hotel. And there are meetings during the day. And there are hotel rooms at night. And there's a bar in the lobby. I'm trying to present a scenario which maybe once or twice has ended up with somebody doing something that was not 100% faithful to their spouse. Correct? Yes? It's possible? It's possible? Conceivable? Potentially conceivable? Never? Okay. I'm going to say maybe. 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 Let's just at least, you know, as a possibility. Here's the question. What, What could potentially... Put the brakes on something happening. And, and I, this is an open-ended question, but I don't mean it to, to be open-ended. Here's what I mean. Somebody loves their spouse. Unfortunately, that's not enough. Why? Because a person could love their spouse, but could also love someone else. Because love does not create exclusivity. Love in and of itself doesn't mean exclusive. Are you with me on that? Again, again, I need to be very clear here. Love is feeling connected and wanting to get more connected. There's nothing inherently exclusive about love. Correct? You can love ice cream and you can love steak. And it's a, oh, how dare you love steak if you love ice cream? You're being unfaithful to ice cream. Who, who would ever say that? What's the connection? Makesha. What's the connection between the two? I love this and I love that. What, what's, the, what's the problem? There's not a problem there. Right? So a person could love their spouse, etc. And, and etc. What's the only thing that gets in the way? Again, I don't mean to ask this as an open-ended question because I'm sure we can come up with many other scenarios. But what emotion helps with this in this area? It's not love. It's respect. It's respect. 
I respect my spouse, I'm not going to do something that violates this respect or trust or dignity, etc. That's not love. That's something else. Love does not speak at all to this scenario. Just because you love doesn't mean that anything else shouldn't happen. That has nothing to do with that. Because you can love ice cream and you can love steak and you're not cheating on ice cream with steak. The issue is respect. The issue is, right, respect and, and boundaries. And I used better words before and I'm forgetting them. Whatever it is, but the point is respect. If you respect the other, you're not going to do something that violates that tr oh, trust and respect, etc. That's the issue. When it comes to God, and this is, this is not true for today, this is true for all time. Anytime you'll see, at least in Jewish thought and Kabbalah thought, anytime you see the words fear of God, please, I ask you, a personal request, do not internalize it as being afraid of God. That is unhealthy. That is never the intention. No one is meant to walk around being afraid of God. That's unhealthy. It's abusive. And it was never the intent. Yirashamayim, fear of heaven, doesn't mean you're afraid of God. It means you respect God enough that you're not going to do something when no one's looking. I don't know what that was, by the way. That was my, when no one's looking. I'll tell you a story. This happened with me when I was a kid. I think I've told it before, but I, wanna, I think it's going to crystallize this idea. I was a kid, and I walked into a convenience store, and I was looking for a drink. No, not that kind of drink. Looking for a drink, for just a beverage, right? So, um... Recently, a doctor told me um, for a prescription that I um, uh, don't drink when you take the medicine. So this is literally, literally the conversation happened um, about a week ago. Um, and so I said, I might have difficulty swallowing it if I, if I can't drink. So she laughed and she said, no, 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 I, I didn't mean you can't drink water. I meant don't drink alcohol. I said, yeah, that's not, that's. It's not, it's not an issue. Anyway, funny, so it's a funny story. I don't know if, I, if I've told that at all in a way that made sense, but anyway, moving on to the other story of when I was a kid. So I go in, I'm looking for you know, a drink. It was a hot day, summer day, and I'm looking, you know, the beverage um, refrigerators in the, in the store, and I'm looking at the things and turning the labels to look for the kosher, the little OU, the little kosher symbol. And the guy behind the counter asked me, what are you looking for? Like, what are you, because people probably don't come in examining. Uh, this is back in the 80s when I guess people didn't read the nutrition labels or maybe there weren't nutrition labels on the bottles. I don't remember when that was instituted. Um, but he was asked, so he asked me, like, what are you looking for? I said, I'm looking for to make sure that it's kosher. So he looks around and he says to me, you know, kid, like, there's no one around. I won't tell anybody. Like, don't worry. <laughs> Your secret's safe. Drink whatever you want. And I'm like, well, it doesn't work like that exactly. That's, what you're, that's, what, that's where Yer Shemayim comes in. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the shoulder. I'm just using it as an example of what is Yer Shemayim. Yer Shemayim is when no one's looking, 
right? When no one's looking, when no one sees, no one will find out, no one would ever find out. Now what? Now what? Are you, are, are you going to stay true to, to, what, to, to, what, to what's needed or are you going to, to what the right thing is? Or are you going to say, well, no one's looking. That's Yerushalayim. That's what Yerushalayim is. It, it's very hard. That's, uh, sorry, I'm saying the Hebrew. That's what fear, fear of God is. Fear of God is not being afraid of God. That is a distortion and a mistranslation and a misunderstanding of what it is. That is not at all what fear of God is. Fear of God is not being afraid of God. That's called being afraid of punishment. I don't know what that is. That's unhealthy. That's not, that's not anything that Judaism would ever advocate for. Fear of God or fear of heaven means that you respect God enough that you're not looking to hide. Is that you don't tell yourself, well, no one's looking. It's in a dark room. I could do whatever I want and God will never find out, and, and you know, I can get away with it. You know what it comes down to? It comes down to that. Bottom line. If you could get away with it, would you? Would you do it? That's the question. That's the question. If you could get away with it, would you do it? If the answer is yes, you would do it, then that means... That the, the love may be there, but the yira, but, the, but the, the, the respect and the trust is not there. If, if a person would say, I can get away with it, but I'm still not going to do it, right? Oh, does it mean when other people say it in this, I don't know. I, I don't know how other people would use it, if fear of God, if that means, if other people do use fear of God as being actually afraid of God, maybe. I don't know. I'm just telling you within a Jewish context and in Kabbalah, when we talk about studying Kabbalah gives you love and fear of God, no. It doesn't make you afraid of God. That's the, never once did a person study Kabbalah and say, wow, I'm, I'm really scared now. God is really frightening me. That's not at all what's going to happen. right? What's going to happen is a respect a respect of God and spirituality to the point, this is really the point, that even when no one's looking, I'm still going to be a match. Even if I get, get away with it, I'm still not going to do it. Why? Because I have too much respect for myself and my own soul and for God. All right, I, think, I hope that makes, does that make sense? The way we're defining it. This is very a very important definition. Again, not just for today, not just for our for our discourse. Anytime, again, it's it's a bakasha, not it's a personal request. Anytime you see the phrase or the word fear, fear of heaven, fear of God, right? God fearing, please do not connect the dots in your head that that means to be afraid of God, to literally fear God. That's not what it means, right? doesn't mean to be afraid. It means to respect. It means to, to respect and, 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 and to, 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 to be in a real relationship with God to the point that you feel that there's a trust on both sides. You trust God and God trusts you not to do something to violate that trust. It means... All right, let's get back inside. This is all a benefit of studying Kabbalah, the third benefit that we're speaking about today. 
right? So another advantage accruing from study of the inner Torah is that it leads to love and fear of God. And he bases off a verse that talks about knowing God and then taking to heart. So knowledge of God, right? Knowledge about God, that, that the Lord is God, which is a Kabbalistic concept. So knowing this, knowing Kabbalah, allows you to take to heart, allows you to, fear, to feel the love and the respect. Let's continue inside. Knowledge of God leads to a wholeness of heart. So beautiful. A lev shalem. Uh, it doesn't work in English. Wholeness of heart. What does that mean? Um, what it really means is both love and, and respect. It means a full experience, a full emotional ex- connection with God. As expounded, and he gives sources in Kabbalah to study, expound the end of Vigerta Kodesh, and Lahavim Ma Shakata Bepriyetzchayim, and Lukhati Torah, Bira Velo Tashbit. He gives sources, and he says, We don't, and we need not go into it further here. Fine, good. Now, this concludes, this right here concludes the third and final advantage, so to speak, or benefit of studying Kabbalah. Based on all of this, he concludes. This really should be a new paragraph, but whatever. He says, this is the sort of good toward which man, a human being, should be attracted. In other words, when you're attracted by the forbidden fruit like Adam and Eve, when you find yourself in a mental tailspin, find yourself spinning your wheels, justifying your passions, stop, drop, and roll. No, stop and pause and tell yourself, remind yourself, ask yourself, is this what I should be running after? Forbidden fruit? No, Kabbalah. This is the sort of good, sorry. This is the sort of good that we should be running after. This must be his desire and aim. And this must be his soul's delight. For this good, the good of studying Kabbalah, right? Filling one's mind and soul with spirituality and godliness. That is appropriate to man's standing. Through this, a person fulfills God's intention, attaining the fulfillment for which he or she was created. So this line right here kind of comes full circle with what we're saying. What we're saying is it's all about, men, about a, a, a meditation in mind to counteract the justification and, 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 and when we get like out of control with desiring something. I need this in my life. This is what I'm running after. This is what's so exciting. This is the be all, and, be all and end all. I'm a human being. I'm a mensch. There are higher forms of passion. Sorry, of higher forms of pleasure. There are higher blessings or higher things that I could be running after, including at the highest point, Torah study and study of Kabbalah. So let me let me open up a. Kabbalah and coffee text and, and get away from the, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's continue. However, this is the flip side. Let's take a look. This is very important. However, if he pursues, and again, I, I, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Probably each time I'll say it. The he is not gender specific. It's in Hebrew. The masculine is the more general um, uh, form. It's either masculine or feminine, but the, the masculine is the more general form, and therefore the translation here is he, 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 and his, but it's, it's for everybody. However, if he pursues physical bodily matters, right, like the forbidden fruit, 
then not only does he fail to accomplish his purpose in existence, but on the contrary, he degrades his soul from its lofty qualities to the state of an animal, which is far inferior to what he truly is. In other words, let me explain. It's all about context, right? It doesn't mean if a person eats, they're, they're an animal. No, no, no. If a person runs after the food, like Adam and Eve, if they're running after forbidden fruit, to a point of self-harm, right, spiritual or otherwise, then what's happening is a person is, is degrading themselves to the state of an animal. And that is far inferior to what a human being can and should be. Now, he's, he breaks down the debasement. He says, why, why is it de degrading? Twofold, right? You got to love, love the analytics here. <laughs> We're analyzing why it's degrading. The debasement is twofold. First of all, first, man acquires the characteristics of whatever he attached himself to. And when he devotes himself totally to the mineral, the vegetable, or the animal, and finds his delight in them, he becomes like them. Actually, in the parentheses, he says, he becomes inferior to them. For when he derives pleasure from them, he is essentially receiving from them. In effect, he descends from the human estate, or plane, to their plane. And this is a radical descent. So, when a person becomes needy and needs the physical, needs a plant, needs an animal, it's degrading. Right? You're taking a mensch and becoming on that level of, of, of needing an animal, needing a plant. Yes, we need to eat to live, obviously, right? But is that, is that what we're, the whole passion is about? Like the, is that what, we're, what our minds are and hearts are filled with? That becomes a degrading experience. The second point, next paragraph, second, since he, the human being, is superior, in other words, for he is human and articulate, the degradation is more severe. I'm going to give you an analogy soon that I think will work for this, about an iPhone. I'm going to get there in a second. When this person, a human being, a mensch, descends and is attracted to unworthy goals and finds satisfaction in them for his soul, he is inferior to the brute animal that has no intelligence or awareness or anything superior to itself in its affairs. Man, however, has a mind. And when he acts like an animal, he's lower than an animal. Let me explain. Here's the example that I wanted to give you. All right, here we go. Imagine you have a smartphone. Screen turned on. Imagine you have a smart, I don't have an iPhone. I have an Android, Samsung. Imagine you have a smartphone, whatever phone it is, right? Smartphone. You can do with this smartphone so many things, right? Not only make calls, but you can text and communicate and you can, you know, learn and you can listen and you can watch. I mean, so, so many incredible things can be done. Imagine a person takes a phone, smartphone, and uses it, you know, doesn't turn it on, and uses it to, um, in their garage, you know, when you park, um, if you want like, uh, like little blocks and bumps to know, you know, where you should park and, 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 um, and uh, you know, not go too far to hit the, 
the front of the garage. You know, they have like bumps, right? Or you could also, um, you know, wheel chocks that you put behind wheels so that it doesn't roll backwards. So imagine somebody takes like a smartphone and uses it in that purpose. So you would say, well, that's, yeah, that's a waste of a smartphone, right? That seems like a waste. Like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you use like a, a brick or a block of wood or something else, right? Why would you use a, a smartphone? That's, 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 you're taking something that can do something much greater and you're using it for such a reduced purpose. Are you with me? Yes? Okay. It's not, maybe it's not a perfect analogy. It worked better in my head maybe than I'm explaining it, but either way, doesn't matter. This is what I got and this is what we're going with for right now. He's saying the same thing is true with the human being. A human being is wired for so much potential. You and I have so much potential. We can accomplish so much. The sky is the limit as far as transcendence and as far as, you know, what we can, the higher forms of pleasure and connection that we can have. So to see a human being run after the pleasures that an animal runs after is not only, it's not only, um, degrading because the human being is now acting like an animal. It's even more degrading because you could be a human being. You with me? It's not just that the human is descending to the state of an animal pursuing passion, but it's that you're dealing with a human being who has so much higher potential. It's a waste of potential in that moment. It's a waste of what, was, what, what could have been a higher experience, a more sublime experience. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that this is all part of the meditation that we can tell ourselves, a narrative that we can feed our own minds when we find ourselves in hot pursuit of something like the forbidden fruit, we can interrupt, right? This pursuit has been interrupted by a, a message from Kabbalah, and that is you're a, you're a human being. You're a mensch. You're a spiritual being. You can connect with all these lofty things and derive the greatest form of pleasure. Why would you run after something so degrading and debasing? Let's finish up the paragraph and finish out discourse number one. Um, and then we'll take questions right after. But let me just, we'll go through this and then we'll wrap it up. This is especially true in light of what we noted in chapter one that Quote, sanctify yourself even with the permissible is a positive commandment by the Torah. But the moment that man engages in physical pursuits for his satisfaction and his pleasure, in other words, without a higher aim, just for animalistic pleasure, so to speak, like an animal, he falls into total evil for the moment, for the moment, until he returns to the service of God and the study of his Torah is explained in Tanya chapter 7, mentioned above in chapter 1. What that means is, and we spoke about this before, that when a person eats or drinks just for the physical satisfaction, at that moment a person falls into the space of an animal and to evil, and evil not in the sense of like cr criminal evil, but spiritual disconnection until a person utilizes the energy from the food for a mitzvah or to study Torah, which inevitably does happen because inevitably after we eat and drink, we then do things throughout the day and we, we end up doing a mitzvah at some point. We end up doing some good thing or saying some good word or reading something positive with that energy and that lifts it back up to a holy space. But the point is why degrade and then uplift if 
in the moment you and I can eat and drink with a higher intention, with a being for a higher purpose. The heart's desires then, so bottom line, the heart's desires then lead man to be lower than unkosher animals, as will, as will be explained. Because again, an animal, an animal doesn't have a choice. An animal is wired to eat, and why? And that's it. There's, there's no animals can't study Kabbalah. Animals don't have the higher potential, right? That, that that human beings have. So for an animal to act like an animal to run after food and etc. Just for the just because it's good, just because they're hungry, makes sense, right? There's nothing wrong with an animal being an animal. But when a person is acting like an animal, that's a problem. That's a, that, that's a degradation. That's a debasement of self. It follows that the persuasion of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, that persuades him in these matters is monumental foolishness. For it turns him from truth and righteousness and only misleads and deceives him. In other words, the Yetzirah that says, ooh, run after this, ooh, it looks good, run after this, that's foolish. So, here he summarizes the meditation. So when the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, persuades him that something is good, not anything, but when something low is good, the person should immediately consider, here's your meditation. This is for you and I. This is our meditation. The moment we feel excited about something that later on we're going to do the face palm. So ask ourselves this, is it good for me? In terms of the greatness of the soul given me, what, when my Yetzirah tells me, oh, it's good, it's good, it's good, is it really good? Is it good for me, considering my soul? Is this the purpose of my, is this the purpose of my existence? On the contrary, it should be a red flag. When he is urged that something looks attractive, that in itself should make him suspicious. <laughs> and he ought to shun it thoroughly to avoid demeaning himself, God forbid. Good for him. Not good for him. Good for him, no. Good. What is good? That means the lofty, the spiritual, for they are, tr- are their true good. And especially Torah study, which is the ultimate good and delight. With that, he fulfills the purpose of his being. By the way, what he means is any of the higher pleasures music, art, philosophy, doing a favor for someone else, studying Torah, studying Kabbalah, all of these are human goods, are human pleasures, as opposed to the more debasing pleasures. We're not picking on food and drink. We all do it. Everyone eats and drinks, and and hopefully we enjoy it also to some extent. We're not picking on food and drink. It's about when we get ourselves into lower behaviors that are that are degrading, lower behaviors that, are, that later on we, we, we regret ourselves. And, the per, the, 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 and what he's trying to give us is ammunition to counter that. Ask yourself, is it good for me in terms of the soul that I possess? Is this the purpose of my existence? Right? right? I'm running after whatever this is. I feel myself in hot pursuit. Stop. Ask yourself. Is this good for me? Is this, my, is this why I'm here? And hopefully with a little bit of perspective, with a little bit of perspective, we can 
ease our way out of that. I need to have it. I need to get that. I need to take a deep breath and do something a little bit more meaningful and more positive. Enjoy lunch. Enjoy dinner. Right? Eat, eat, eat for, a, for a higher purpose. This is not talking about food. This is talking about degrading activities. And you and I, we don't need definitions of what that is. Yada inish benafshe. Everyone knows themselves what that is for them. Right? Whatever it is, this is a way to get ourselves out of it and to redirect the energy into something more positive. This is the first folly and the first counter folly. Ah, like in tennis, there's a counter volley. This is a counter folly. So the first folly is, it's good. I like it. I need to have it. The counter folly is, is it really good? Is it good for you? It might be good for an animal that doesn't have a higher you know, capacity, but is it good for you? Right? It's good. Is it good for me? Don't, don't I have something greater that I can aspire to than this? That's the first counter folly. I want to share with you a story as we close out today. A great, great story. Just give me like 90 seconds for the story. You'll, you'll love it. It was in the times of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. He had a chassid named Reb Shmuel Munkus. Shmuel Munkus was a brilliant chassid, a brilliant student, but he was also very mischievous. He was also very um, playful. Like, for example, he once... Um, hung himself up, not hung himself, but, but like put himself upside down in the front of the synagogue, like on display. And they asked, what's, like, what, what in the world are you doing? So he said, when you go to like a butcher, there's a piece of meat hanging. When you go to a barber, there's a scissors. So when you go to a rebbe, a rebbe's shul, there should be a chassid over there in the front, in the window. Anyway, it, he was a jokester. Maybe that's not the best story, but he was a, a very funny guy, like super funny guy. Story goes that there was once a fabrangan amongst, amongst the chassidim. The Atar Rebbe wasn't there, it was amongst the, the chassidim, the disciples. And um, the fabrangan was going well into the night. And at a certain point, they bring from the kitchen a big platter of meat. Like farbai, in Yiddish we call it farbaisen. Farbaisen means like food, right? You got some food to fuel the fabrangan, keep it, keep it in, a, in a positive uh, Fareng is a, is a gathering, a chassid, a gathering, and you bring out food to, you know, keep everybody, you know, fed and entertained. This would be a higher experience of eating. But what happened is, oh, sorry, Shmuel Munkus was the one who brought the platter. I'm just going to go like that because I picture him like a waiter. Bring the platter from the kitchen. And as he's coming out, everybody starts, like, gravitating. You know, when, when a waiter brings out and people are hungry, everyone starts... You know, before the waiter can come to you, everyone starts going over and grabbing. So everyone starts grabbing it and he starts avoiding them and like dancing away and, and they, everyone gets like upset and they all start really trying to get it from him and, and, and rest it, wrestle it away from him. And eventually he heads over to the garbage and throws the whole platter of meat in. They were upset. They were upset at him. He took good flesh. And, and threw it away in the garbage? Baltashkos, you can't waste food, right? So they start beating him, not really beating him, but like, you know, start, start like, what are you doing? Getting on him. Anyway, while that's going on, the, the, the cook, the chef from the kitchen comes out and says, I hope no one ate the meat. It turns out I just realized that that was a piece of non-kosher meat that I prepared and I cooked, whatever. I hope no one ate it. Everyone realized 
that uh, they were saved. The Shmuel Mukas threw it into the garbage. No one ate it. They were spared. Now they really gave it to him. Oh, what is this? You're a prophet now. You're 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 proving prophecy. You think you're 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 um. Right, you're doing miracles here. They really started giving, giving to him. So he said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not boasting of any miraculous powers. It was very simple. The moment I saw how excited you were about the food, how excited you were about the meat, I realized there was something, not, something unkosher here, whether li- literally or figuratively. I saw that if you're so excited about the food, about this food, it was a red flag. And so I tossed it. Anyway, what's the moral of the story? If you have a good steak, you don't have to throw it out, don't worry, or a good piece of sushi, whatever it is, it's fine. But what it means is, like we said in the last paragraph, when it looks very enticing, when our Yetzer is really getting us excited about something, that itself is, could be a red flag to say, wait a second, let me put on the brakes, is this really what I should be pursuing? And, uh, and, and re- reevaluate from there. All right, so today, in summation, we explored three benefits of Kabbalah study. Number one, the benefit of Kabbalah study is that it gives us the opportunity to connect with God's in, innermost wisdom. Number two, it allows us to develop, to refine our character and become more of a mensch. And number three, it creates emotional, an emotional connection with God, creating a love for God and a respect for God. And these are the benefits of Kabbalah. And in the context of our discourse, the point is, when we find ourselves wanting something good, study Kabbalah. That's the greatest good. Can't get greater than that. And that can help steer us away from the pitfalls of human desire and passion. That concludes discourse number one. Just so you know, there are 28 discourses in this book. So we're just at the beginning. We have so much more to cover. And please, God, we will pick it up next Sunday. Same bad time, same bad channel. Good health. Um, back to, thank you. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. Um, we, will continue get, we will continue this discourse next Sunday, Overcoming Folly, Chapter 2, begin, or uh, Discourse 2 begins next week. All right, question. Oh, one more thing, one more thing. Very important. This, sun, uh, this week... And then I'll take questions or comments. This week, we are starting a new course called Journey of the Soul. It talks about the soul's journey before life, during, well, before this, this, and after this. Um, It's my belief that, you know, given what's been going on the last uh, 10 months or so, that people are more anxious than ever about mortality and about just the precariousness of, of life. Um, this is something that we address right at the beginning of this course, the first lesson, which is this week. Um, we address the anxiety that we have over life and, 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 and the opposite. And so I encourage everybody to participate in this, um, even if you've taken other courses um, that I've taught or that others have taught on, on the afterlife, this is, um, this is more comprehensive, and, and I think you'll find it meaningful, especially given the times that we're in, a very uplifting and very, um, the word that comes to mind is calming, but a very um, nurturing and calming um, perspective on, 
on, on really on the soul and, and the journey of life in all of its uh, permutations. So I encourage everyone to join. It begins Tuesday night at 8 or Thursday at noon. The Tuesday night is the Zoom class. Um, you can always try out the first class and just see if it works for you and then, uh, and then carry on from there. The, um, the web site to check out the course is um, intownjewishacademy.org slash journey. So check it out. And then I should mention also that Dr. Maxi um, uh, has sponsored this course in loving memory of her dear father who passed away recently. So it's uh, truly an honor and a, uh, and a pleasure to have it dedicated um, um, in, in his memory, in his loving memory. So thank you for that. And again, everyone's encouraged to join. Questions or comments on this class or general questions? Great class. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we are so happy that you are recovered and all the blessings. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for the good wishes. And thank you for all of, for all of those that reach out to me in various, uh, various ways um, with good wishes. I appreciate it. And uh, it, it was very touching um, to get messages and, and, and to, to, feel that, to feel that connection and that love. And I appreciate it. I really do. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Yeah. All right. And the blessings. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And to everybody as well, to good health and to happiness, to only blessings. All right. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you all soon. And uh, take care. Shavua Tov. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much. Great class. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Mariana. Bye, Alex. Bye, everybody. Bye, Sandrine. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Stan. Take care, everybody.